Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. We remain on Zoom for this episode and much to the disappointment of my taste buds, I might add. Uh, You know, places like the Taco Stand and the Mayflower Restaurant on Broad Street. Man, I miss Athens. You'll be okay, little buddy. Just hang in there a little while longer and we will return to all the fun and good food that Athens has to offer. But for right now, Tane, we got to get through this evidence series and we have an interesting topic to discuss today, Tane, don't we? Yeah, that's right. We're going to talk about confessions and custodial statements. And these issues frequently arise as part of criminal pretrial proceedings, usually involving a hearing under Jackson v. Denno. Earlier in this series, we we focused on that process of how you would address evidence objections. Today, we're going to hone in on a particular type of objection and or a couple of specific rules, those being 823, 824, and 825. Man, that's awesome. Let's get started. So let's give a little preface. We are going, I think we have recorded, actually, I just don't know that it's been published, an entire episode on Jackson v. Deno hearings. Yeah, I think it was quite a while back, but yeah, we did. So we may also, you know, eventually have time to record an episode dealing with confessions by juveniles or maybe something further with Jackson v. Deno. But today's episode is going to fit with all of that Jackson v. Deno episode we want to discuss these. We want these episodes to be shorter, more to the point, allowing us to focus and focus you, frankly, frankly, on the rules and the impact of your decisions under Jackson v. Deno. So admittedly, this is going to come up in a Jackson v. Deno hearing and all of these issues about whether you're in custody and whether all these rights were read to you and all of those other issues are going to arise. But today we're going to focus solely on the issues that are found within the 800 rules of the evidence code, right, Tang? Yeah, that's right. You know, I couldn't have told you that there was a rule in the evidence code dealing with confessions, but these rules have been part of Georgia's code for generations, just with a different number, right? I mean, I just didn't know that that we had like 823 that says, all admissions shall be scanned with care and confessions of guilt shall be received with great caution. A confession alone, uncorroborated by any other evidence, shall not justify conviction. I mean, I knew that was the law. I knew we charged it all the time. I just didn't know where where to find it. Yeah, it's in an odd place, at least in my opinion. But uh, just remember, if you get to that, it's after all the hearsay exceptions, and it's, it's, it's kind of buried in the 800s. Um, Rule 824 specifically provides to make a confession admissible. It shall have been made voluntarily without being induced by another by the slightest hope of benefit or remotest fear of injury. My golly, you're going to say that phrase a lot. The slightest hope of benefit and remotest fear. Is remotest a word? I guess it is if it's in the code, right? Yeah, like legitimization. Anyway. Remember that when prior Georgia law was substantially the same as the current law, especially as it relates to anything in the evidence code, those prior decisions continue to be valid precedent. When there's a departure made, you need to look at 11th Circuit decisions if you need some guidance on what Georgia's evidence code is. But on anything that is a carryover from a prior uh, from prior Georgia law, and this is actually verbatim, isn't it, Tane? Yeah, it is. Um, under prior law, the exact language that appears in Rule 824 was in the statutory text of OCGA Section 24-3-50. And there's a case on point that's in our notes. And then under 24-3-53, that's now 823. So 
there th- these things track exactly. So Tane, we told these folks in these series, by golly, we're going back to the basics. So in keeping with that sort of idea, this is a football. Well, let's define this is a confession. What's a confession, Tane? And and don't give me the Tane definition. Give me like the legal one. Sure. So, you know, back in the old days, Georgia law differentiated between a confession and an incriminating statement. And that distinction has been eliminated by several cases. And those are in our notes as well. Rule 824 specifically provides that confessions are not admissible unless the confession was made, quote, without being induced by another by the slightest hope of benefit or the remotest fear of injury. You know, Tane, that old law that used to say there was a difference between confessions and a statement. What was it? The uh, uh, incriminating statement? Yeah. They used to make a big distinction of whether or not you admitted the crime or you just admitted some facts. Yeah. And and the law is fine. Everything like, up to the crime. Yeah. The law is like, we're going we're gonna to treat that whole operation as a confession and, and carry forward. So let's talk about the slightest hope of benefit. Tane, all, all is a big word. Most of the confessions I see Somebody is trying to convince the defendant to make a statement against what would otherwise be his or her interest because of how it's going to help them. Mm-hmm. Is that what we're talking about, about hope of benefit? I mean, when we get down to the legal definition, is it like you, you, it can't benefit you? No, it, it refers specifically to things like promises related to reduced criminal punishment. Things like a shorter sentence, lesser charges, or no charges at all. So, you know, I, I don't. I think about it a little bit like in my past dating life, where I'd say, "Hey, would you like to go out with me?" And a girl said, "Nah, that's not likely." And I would say, "Then there's a chance. That's a slightest hope of benefit right there." But in this case, <laughs> that's not. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things specifically related to sentences and lesser charges and no charges at all. You got and me. I will admit it on that. I will, I will admit you got me right there. I didn't see that one coming. Good one. You didn't see that coming. I didn't see it. All right. So let's right. give, let's give the folks some examples. So the officer tells the defendant that if he confesses, he will receive a lighter sentence. Well, that's a promise. And the officer that he basically has invalidated and made that confession inadmissible. But as you're going to see, there are very fine distinctions between promising someone a lighter sentence and, for example, telling somebody they'll talk to the DA for you, let them know of your cooperation. That's that's yeah. okay. Promising a lighter sentence, not okay. So, right. And, for example, if the officer tells the defendant that if he makes a statement, the officer would drop certain charges in his case, that would also make the statement inadmissible. But there are other cases that get kind of close to that line that that are uh, not considered to make the statement inadmissible. Correct. And and the same if you somehow are promised immunity, like, look, just tell me and I'll never, you know, you won't be charged. You can't be charged. You'll never be charged. You, you can't do that. And if you do, that's going to be that slightest hope of benefit. Again, that's relating to sentences, criminal punishment. Now, by comparison, and these distinctions, like we said, are fine and important. A promise to tell the prosecutor or the judge of the defendant's cooperation, that is not a hope of benefit. What they've called that, Tane, is hope of a collateral benefit. And there's a very important reason that they did that, Wade, and that's to be confusing. (laughs) So, So if it's a hope of benefit, then I, I guess it should have said hope of direct benefit. I don't know. But hope of a collateral benefit does not render the confession inadmissible. So 
And there's a whole line of cases, especially dealing with the we'll tell the prosecutor of your assistance, we'll tell the judge how you cooperated, those sorts of things. Now, tell yeah, it, t- used, it, it should be called a hope of a sentence benefit. You know, yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, yeah. Or hope or like you said, hope of a punishment benefit. I mean, because that's what it really is. It, it, all these other little things are just nibbling around the edges of that. Now, Tane. 825 is, again, that's old Georgia law, but tell the folks what 825 says, because here we go. Hallelujah. I love this one. It says, the fact that a confession has been made under a spiritual exhortation, a promise of secrecy, or a promise of collateral benefit shall not exclude it. And there's where we got collateral benefit. I love that. You know, you know, I think, I think your soul will probably be cleansed if you go ahead and say that you did this. Yeah, this is yikes. Not a promise of benefit, man. No, I, I don't. It's collateral. If you read, if you read the book carefully, <laughs> they don't have the the ability to make that come true. So Correct. anyway, I just we don't have the time to theologically examine that, but uh, there's a reason for that. So promises made by officers to ensure the defendant gets psychiatric treatment while in jail, that's collateral, Not doesn't render it inadmissible. Same with reducing your bond. Now, see, that feels the same, but it's not the same. That's not a sentence benefit. Promises to make sure the defendant gets a single-person jail cell. Might be important. I got to tell you, that's a benefit I want right there. If I'm going to jail... Can I single bunk? That would be awesome. I would like that. Less nerves. Now, Tane, I've heard I've seen this all kind of times, and I bet you have too, where the officers tell the defendant that his fill in the blank, girlfriend, mama, cousin, whatever, is gonna be charged as a party to the crime if you don't confess, or is gonna be charged with making false statements for covering for your behind, or we're gonna lose public housing, or well, we're going to have to take custody of those kids because that girl's going to get locked up. Now, Tane, right, is that a collateral benefit? What, what, what we got there? Those threats are clearly collateral benefits and do not render the confession of the suspect inadmissible. And again, we've got citations for that for you at goodjudgepod.com. So sometimes you see, Tane, the, the appellate cases talk about mere legal truisms. You've seen that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's things like an officer's statement to the defendant that he would arrest the defendant's wife if she lied about the defendant's whereabouts. And that's what they called a mere truism and did not render the defendant's subsequent confession involuntary. So basically a statement by a police officer that makes the defendant aware of potential legal consequences, that's the nature in the nature of a mere truism. And it does not constitute a threat of injury. Or promise of benefit, and we've got cases on that. So when you when you see some of that, that happens a lot, frankly. And you see some of that. You, we've got a whole line of cases here you can put in your notebook for your your hearings, your Jackson Dino notebook. Pull it out and and use it when you need it. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. 
We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Tame, what about when a that the officers say, now look, if you don't give me some reason to change my mind, you're going to be arrested. Yeah, there, that that is, again, not something that made the statement inadmissible. Such statements are, as they said, in the nature of a mere truism and simply made the defendant aware of the potential legal consequences of his failure to cooperate. So where an officer says that he's going to talk to the pre- prosecutor about dismissing a warrant in an unrelated case, Tane, earlier you said yeah. in this case, if you promise to dismiss this case, that makes it inadmissible. But if we if we want to talk about dismissing that drug case, if you make a statement in this homicide case, that's and a collateral that benefit. That's right. That's a collateral benefit. And and again, you, you got to be careful in these cases what the circumstances were. But his promise was to talk to the prosecutor about dismissing a warrant in an unrelated case. And that was deemed to be a collateral benefit. Promising defendant he's going to see his family, smoke a cigarette whatever, that's not a hope of benefit. Same with telling the defendant that he could go home regardless of what he says in this statement. That's not a, that's only a collateral benefit that because again, Tane, I think that your, that your suggestion was right. If it, what it ought to say is sentencing benefit, a promise of a sentencing benefit makes it illegal. That's right. So, for example, admonitions to tell the truth are not going to invalidate a confession. In other words, telling the the defendant that he should tell his side of the story because the victim was claiming forcible rape. That's just an admonition to tell the truth or, you know, things are going to go better for you if you, you know, if you just come clean and tell the truth, that's going to be better for you. I've seen cases that say that doesn't cross the line. You know, it's it's close, but it's not offering a, a, a benefit in the sentence or something like that. And then finally, you understand this has to be the test is not the defendant's subjective state of mind or what he thought the officer meant. That's not that's not the test. It has to be an objective, reasonable person or else everybody would just say, I thought he meant. Right. So and then in the, so in a case, Wade, where. uh where the defendant says to the officer, Hey man, should I talk? What should I do? And the officer says, that's up to you, man. All you're going to do is help yourself out. Was that a hope of benefit or was it not Wade? Not a hope of benefit. Remember he didn't talk about the Senate. He didn't talk about charges being dismissed in this or any other case. He just said, that's up to you, man. You, you could help yourself out. And and the cases are pretty clear that that all that you should help yourself out, you should tell the truth. That's that's not a problem in this in this context. So Tane, we've talked about two things. We've gotten one. We've gotten hope of benefit. There's we know there's two. Talk about a little bit about the remotest fear of injury, and we see this far less, you know. Yeah, sure, but but it does happen out there, and there are cases out there. And remotest fear of injury is defined as physical or mental torture that prevents a confession from being admissible. And I mean, that's, 
that's pretty awesome. Uh, pretty obvious. Pretty awesome. It's pretty obvious um, what we're talking about here. I mean, uh, suggesting that the defendant might be safer in police custody as opposed to be out in, out on the street. That's not. That doesn't create a fear of inter- injury under the statute. Things like, well, if you don't tell the truth, I'm going to beat you with this flashlight. That's going to invalidate a confession. You and, know, you might, or, and you might talk about how long we, we were in the room and were you allowed to have a bathroom break? Did you eat? All that kind of stuff. That's going to go into that. But they're mm-hmm. really talking about physical threats here. Now, remember, Judge, you have to make the credibility determinations. In these cases, you're making that determination. So where there's conflicting testimony where the defendant says he beat me this way, that way, and the other way, he starved me, wouldn't let me go to the bathroom. First of all, that video, hopefully video, will probably belie some of that. But secondly, credibility determinations are up to the judge. And unless there is clear evidence to support or refute that claim by, say, a video, it, that the rest of that's going to be up to you, judge. That's exactly right. So, Tane, we talked earlier in our Jackson Deno uh, episodes about um, intoxicated defendants and mentally ill defendants and police tactics like, you know, lying, making untrue statements, reading the Miranda warnings, requests for counsel and all sorts of other issues dealing that, that are going to come up in a Jackson Deno hearing. And one thing that we want everybody to to understand from this episode. Now, this is a fine line. Please follow me here because you're at first it's, it's going to sound like I said, you know, white is black and black is white. There is a difference between whether a defendant was advised or his, of his or her Miranda warnings, asked for counsel, was it clear, was it unequivocal, and all of that, versus simply asking whether the statement was made voluntarily. Those are two different things. Judges do it. Lawyers do it. The motions do it. They're going to include them all in that lump them together. He didn't read Miranda. Therefore, it wasn't freely and voluntarily made. Frankly, those are two different analyses. And we've got some case law here that I think is worth a read, especially if you're getting into a hotly contested Jackson v. Deno hearing. What we're talking about in the 800 rules is voluntariness. You'll notice there's no reference to Miranda, warnings, none of that. You know what I mean, Tane? I mean, those are actually different things. And and you could find some statement was voluntary without Miranda warnings. You could find a statement with, with that was not voluntary that had Miranda warnings. That's right. And if you look in the materials that we have, uh, there's a there's a good case called Reed versus State that talks about how there is a difference between a defendant's complaint that a statement was not voluntary and a complaint that the state that the statement was um, violated. In other words, that, uh, that, that I mean, that it violated Miranda, that he didn't get his Miranda rights. So um, that's a good case to look at. It's in the materials. And there's a difference between the two. Defendant's objection based upon Miranda does not raise a requirement that the court conduct a Jackson Deno hearing under Reed. And 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 I think that Reed case is worth a, a, a good read, especially if you have a hotly contested Jackson Deno hearing. Now, Tane, coercive police activity, that is what the necessary predicate is for the finding that a confession is not voluntary within the, the meaning of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That's right. But an investigator's failure to administer Miranda warnings does not mean that it has been coerced or that it was given with hope of benefit or the remotest fear of injury, but only that the courts will presume that that privilege against compulsory 
Self-incrimination has not been intelligently exercised. Thus, the, the Miranda presumption does not necessarily constitute a finding that the statement was coerced. Now, Tane, the reason I think that Reed and Troutman and some of these other cases talk about that is because, you know, you can't read and you cannot use an involuntary statement for anything. That's true. But you might be able to use a non-Miranda statement to impeach. Correct. So there's a difference or the, the distinction between the two is an extremely important one because it, as you said, it may affect the usefulness of the statement or the, uh, the circumstances under which it might or might not be used. Now you're going to notice in this whole episode, we haven't yet talked about the defendant being in custody or not in custody, whether they were free to leave or a reasonable person would feel they're free to leave. That's intentional. Miranda is triggered when a defendant is in custody. Even if that defendant is not in custody, if he makes that statement and that statement is involuntary, either because of hope or benefit or fear of injury, that statement is simply inadmissible regardless of how many times they read Miranda warnings. And we wanted to stress that difference here and just want to make sure that our judges understand that difference. Well, think about it. You can threaten someone or you can promise them some hope of benefit sitting in the cozy confines of their living room. Um, You know, they don't have to be arrested and in custody and in handcuffs or in an interrogation room to make a threat. And so uh, that's why you can read them a right and you can read them their rights as you you. I don't know how they used to do it back in the old day when they had the billy clubs and they would be and you have the right to remain silent. You have a right. You know, I mean, you can do that, too. Right. I mean, yeah, that would absolutely. equally make it un- involuntary. So all of these decisions concerning the trial judge has as to the admissibility of a confession or a statement, they're based upon, Tane, that favorite of ours, the old Lang Syne, that totality of circumstances analysis. Oh. Totality of the circumstances. Where would we be without it, Wade? I don't know, but whoever came up with that, they should have trademarked that. Um, <laughs> there is a borderline Trademark. issue. Copyright. Copyright. 2019. <laughs> All rights reserved. So you just claimed it? Just did it, with. Oh, nice. They owe you back pay. Is there, if there is a borderline issue as to voluntariness or a borderline issue involving a Miranda violation, frankly, you may decide that those two borderline issues result in an inadmissible statement under Jackson v. Deno. I mean, that's totality of the circumstances. It doesn't have to be either or, yes, no, binary. But something we haven't talked about up to this point, that's really important. Whose burden is it, Wade? Whose burden is it to prove voluntariness? Yeah, by a preponderance of the evidence that the statement was not coerced or not rendered uh, in a hope with a hope of benefit. That's it's a state's state. burden. Even there though the go. defendant makes the motion, it's Sorry, the state's burden. Ball. So, Tane, <laughs> who? Who goes first at the hearing? Who calls witnesses? That's a great question, Wade. I'd say the state does because it's their burden. Exactly. But see, the defendant filed the motion. So sometimes people get all twisted up. Well, you filed the motion. Move ant, go ahead. Yeah, move ant. You're the move <laughs> ant. Go ahead. Whoa, 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 whoa. State's burden. State preponderance of the evidence. Don't forget that. Don't get that twisted up. That's exactly so- right. So, folks, that's it for our episode on the voluntariness, I guess, of confessions under 823, 824, and 825. 
Yeah, folks, we hope you're enjoying this evidence series. As we previously noted, we decided to dedicate ourselves to making an entire evidence series for the benefit of our new judgment or new judges orientation class attendees. But we simply do not have enough time during that NJO to adequately discuss all the evidence issues, although prior class attendees have asked us to address some of these things related to evidence. So here you go, folks. They're all on the podcast. But merely because we decided to record this series in anticipation of our NJO class of 2021, that does not mean that we that this review of these evidence issues is useless to our more seasoned judges and lawyers. Yeah, I mean, just like Vince Lombardi introducing folks to a, to a football at the beginning of every season, sometimes it's worth remembering uh, exactly where we start on these issues. So. So thank you very much. So folks, thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We want to thank everybody who has reached out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That's goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We have received a bunch of great ideas, and frankly, we are we really do have those in the works. Yeah, we really do. And uh, folks, you too can have us discuss an issue you want us to discuss, but we can't read your minds. So send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And tell us those great ideas. Don't send us the crummy ones. Send us the good ones. You can visit us on our website, goodjudgepod.com, for the episode notes from this episode and all other episodes of which we have already recorded and taken the time to download on the website. This particular outline has a bunch, seriously, a bunch of sites that you're, you're probably going to want to include in your own criminal notebook. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. And remember... This podcast was recorded without hope of benefit or threat of injury. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.